Tonight, once again, we try to examine the genealogy of man, not merely who your parents and grandparents and ultimate great-grandparents were, but rather what prior forms of life uh, are in our ancestry and uh, thus prior forms of life from which we descend. My guests are Robert Martin and James Phillips. Robert Martin, who's been here before, of course, is Vice President for Academic Affairs and Curator in Biological Anthropology at the Field Museum. He's also a member of the Committee on Evolutionary Biology at the University of Chicago. James Phillips has his PhD from the University of Chicago. He's a very active anthropologist in the field, uh, the field being essentially the Middle East. He is professor of anthropology at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Gentlemen, an appropriate way to begin a program like this is with a classic quotation, at least classic in the sense of being uh, some over 400 years old. I offer you this from Shakespeare, from Hamlet, in fact. What a piece of work is a man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god. Now, we, did, we weren't that way if you work us back, say, two million years, were we, Robert Martin? No, if you go back two million years, our uh, relatives at that point were a lot more primitive than they are today. And if you go back to where we split from the chimpanzees, which are our closest relatives, then uh, there would have been very little difference at all between our first relatives on that lineage and the early chimpanzees at that time. When we speak of ourselves, when we, when we say we, we're talking about a particular species it's commonly called Homo sapiens sapiens. Why, uh, Jim Phillips, why the double sapiens? Why the double sapiens? Oh, my goodness. Um, I don't know the Lamarckian reason for it, but Bob Martin would, would be able the, to tell you that. The thing is, if you use a double name like that, it's because it's a subspecies. And so the species is Homo sapiens. And uh, when that name Homo sapiens sapiens was used, it was because it was thought we were a subspecies. And the other subspecies was Homo sapiens neanderthalensis. But mm -hmm. one of the things that is now very clear is that Neanderthals were very, very different from us. And so you can actually drop the second sapiens and talk about Homo sapiens and Homo neanderthalensis. We, we don't need the subspecies anymore. Well, we're very interested in Neanderthals. And there is, there, I, I know from earlier discussions with yet other people in your field that there is an hypothesis around that the Neanderthals did not completely disappear, that they merged into uh, the same stock. And there are some people who kind of look Neanderthalish because they are. But you reject that. Uh, the thing is that you get variability in any species. And so, uh, of course, if you look at modern humans, there's quite a bit of variability. But uh, we now know enough about Neanderthals to know that mm. there's very little overlap between our range of variability and the range of variability of Neanderthals. We've come a long way because uh, 50, 100 years ago, when we had very few fossils, it was thought that Neanderthals were directly ancestral to us because we didn't have anything else. But the more fossils we found, the clearer it has become that the Neanderthals were sidelined and that we're a separate lineage. So we're not a further evolution out of the Neanderthal stock. They evolved from some common ancestor. We evolved from that same common ancestor, but in another direction. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. Who was that common ancestor? Uh, who was that common ancestor? Well, there are a number of different hypotheses uh, about it. Um, 
I would say, uh, Bob may uh, not agree with me, I would say that somewhere around 200,000 years ago, or a little earlier, between three and 200,000 years ago, there was an individual whom many uh, biological anthropologists might call archaic homo sapiens, they call it. Mm -hmm. And they are found in uh, Europe and North Africa and East Africa and in the Near East and in the non-glaciated parts of the of the old world. And therefore, they may have been the common ancestor. Culturally, they certainly are, I might tell you, uh, as opposed to biologically, um, to this the lineage which in one area goes into the glaciated parts of the uh, old world, and therefore uh, we have Neanderthal, and in the non-glaciated parts, we have people who evolve into us, homo sapiens sapiens. Is this lineage correct, working backwards from us to earlier forms, earlier hominid forms of man? Um, I've got this from something I pulled off the internet, but uh, knowledge changes so rapidly that this may be outdated. Uh, this guy says, uh, homo sapiens sapiens was predated by homo sapiens neanderthalensis, so already we've disagreed with that. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, one of the breakthroughs, Jim uh, probably knows more about this than I do, but one of the breakthroughs was in the Middle East finding uh, in different sites, but you can find early Homo sapiens uh, up to 100,000 years mm -hmm. ago, and you can find Neanderthals 100,000 years ago. So we know that at that time, uh, both species li uh, lived separately. Uh, they're never found together, so at any one site you find either one or the other. But working back on from this little genealogy I've got here, uh, predating both Neanderthalensis and Homo sapiens is Homo sapiens archaic, of which you've just spoken, and then Homo erectus, uh, Homo habilis, uh, Australopithecus robustus, Australopithecus africanus, Australopithecus afarensis, Australopithecus Anamensis and Ardipithecus ramidus. Those fossils existed. That's true, but that doesn't mean that there's a straight line from so this, this lineage to is us. Not, right, this lineage right. is not necessarily correct. Oh, correct. That, that can't possibly no. be a single lineage because Robustus, for example, was yeah. definitely a sideline that died out. And uh, at one stage, it was thought that Australopithecus africanus led into the robust forms, Australopithecus robustus and Boise. Uh, but then a skull was found, uh, which was on the robust lineage, which occurred at the same time as Africanus. So we now know that those two lineages existed side by side. The, the really important thing is that originally when people had very few fossils, it was easy to believe that we had a single lineage. The more fossils we find, the more it looks like a bush. So, uh, A bush in what sense? <clears throat> the difference in the metaphor between a bush and a tree, what do you mean by that? I, well, I just mean there are a lot more twigs around. It looks more like a, a bush in your garden than a, uh, like a nice, relatively uh, thinly branched tree. Evolution is branching off in all sorts of directions, even within the broad hominid range. That's right. I mean, perhaps a tree is the wrong uh, example for it because people thought it was just a straight line, so it w mm -hmm. would have just been a single branch. It would have just been one piece after another. Uh, but, it, but certainly the fossils we now have, up to 20 different species can be recognized belonging to our family, and, and they're very much separate branches. Well, where does it all begin? Where does our family first emerge? Um, if you're saying uh, the hominid, hominid yeah. somewhere around, hominid I would, means, I would suggest means oh, approximately 1.8 million years ago or so. Uh, with Homo erectus is what I'm suggesting. That's the uh, genus. Yeah, the yeah. genus. Right, right. Homo but erectus. Hominids, uh, hominids are much about. earlier, but Homo erectus, I think, is. Well, what does one, one mean by hominid, Bob? 
the anything that's on our side of the tree compared to chimpanzees, the uh, uh, great apes we call mm-hmm. pongids, and anything that's related to us we call a hominid. So when you get the first split between great apes and us, uh, which is probably about seven or eight million years ago, that far that's back. when hominids start. And there was a major discovery uh, just over a year ago in Chad of a uh, skull which was called Sahelanthropus, which is six to seven million years old. And it's controversial, as you might expect, because it's a very early thing. It's quite close to the separation that I would expect between chimpanzees and humans. And that is possibly the earliest hominid that we know. Sahelanthropus would mean it's found in the Sahel Desert, I suppose. Exactly, yes. Uh, what was it like? What, uh, to what degree can we reconstruct from whatever they found uh, to indicate Sahelanthropus, what can we reconstruct about the kind of animal, the kind of being it was? Yeah. The, there are three main things that distinguish us. If you compare us to chimpanzees, we differ in three main ways. We, uh, the jaws have been totally remodeled, it's particularly our canine teeth at the corners of the jaws have been reduced, and they're just like incisor teeth. Uh, we walk upright uh, on two legs, unlike any of the great apes, and we also have a much larger brain. Now, these things uh, change at different rates throughout the lineage, but what we'd be looking for with something like Sahelanthropus is did it have small canine teeth? Was there any evidence on the skull that it walked upright? And what was the brain size like? Now, we know the brain size really was not uh, out of the ape range, but the canines were small. So the uh, beginning of, of jaw remodeling is there. But the key thing is that where we, because we walk upright, uh, upright, our skull is balanced on the spine. Mm-hmm. And there's a hole at the back of the skull where the spinal cord emerges, which is called the foramen magnum. And when you walk upright, the foramen magnum gets shifted underneath the skull. And because the skull is balanced on the spinal cord, you don't uh, need very much neck musculature to hold the, uh, the head in place. And in Sahelanthropus, six to seven million years ago, you can see this frame and magnum, the hole for the spinal cord has been moved forward somewhat. And the, uh, the musculature for the neck has been reduced. So there's a, a, a clear indication there that this was adapted for some degree of upright walking. Now, I'm not going to raise the silly specter of creationism, but still, people who know that evolution makes sense don't necessarily understand just how the process works. One might very well ask, well, if there's a branching off from some common ancestor between the um, apes and chimpanzees on the one hand and uh, the, the forms that became man on the other hand, uh, that, does that happen overnight? No, that can't possibly be the case. Uh, how does it happen if it's supposed to be accretions of small changes that assist in further adaptation? How do all of those changes ultimately lead to a totally different uh, animal, a different, well, going back to the Shakespeare passage, uh, what a piece of work is man? How noble in reason, how infinite faculties, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, all like a god. We are more like that than, chimp- than contemporary chimpanzees are. We are more like that than our original ancestors, say, than Homo habilis or Homo uh, uh, australopithecus uh, Africanus, uh, Africanus was, and so on. Mm-hmm. What's the mechanism of change, and how quickly does it work? How quickly does it move? Why don't things stay put in nature rather than ultimately producing Homo sapiens sapiens? With that in mind, we'll pause for a few minutes and we'll turn to your answers right after these words.
the challenge I was just putting to Robert Martin of the Field Museum and James Phillips of the University of Illinois at Chicago is simply explain how evolution works and at what pace so as to over a mere six or seven or is it eight million years to produce uh, having branched off from the uh, common ancestors which generated hominids and the apes uh, to have produced Homo sapiens in a mere eight million years. What does it? Well, the, the first thing to emphasize is that different lineages can evolve at different rates. Mm -hmm. And if you go back... Eight fruit ten, flies move much more quickly, don't they? Sorry? The fruit flies. Dro Drosophila melangoaster? Well, that's right. Fruit flies probably evolve a lot more slowly than uh, primates generally. But if you go back 10 million years, uh, there's essentially a three-way split between a gorilla and a chimpanzee and a human. Now, gorillas and chimpanzees are very similar to one another, despite the fact that they diverged about the same time as when we split off. And yet we are very, very different from both gorillas and chimpanzees. So there must have been something special about our lineage. And so you, if you look at the evolutionary tree in general, you see that some lineages evolve rapidly and others evolve more slowly. And the key is environmental change. And presumably, gorillas and chimpanzees remained in the forest, and that's why their chain, rate of change has been relatively oh. short. So, so chimpanzees and gorillas have been chimpanzees and gorillas across many, many more generations than we have been Homo sapiens. Yeah, they, they haven't remained exactly the same. They've just evolved more yeah. slowly, so they're much more similar to the common ancestor, whereas our evolution has been very rapid. Well, how did our environments and the change in our environments produce change in our structure. There's always a relationship between the environment and whatever animal or plant that's sure. involved in, in the, it's a contextual thing. And it's quite clear that in our lineage, that is, or our lineages that eventually evolved in, into us, there were major changes going on, but the changes occurred only in different parts of the old world and new world, not at the same rate and not in the same places. And since our ancestors were, are found in East and Southern Africa, our original ancestors, uh, we have to look at that area first. And that area where they evolved was more tropical, uh, subtropical, sure. they're more closer to the equator. And therefore their adaptation was to a kind of an open savanna forested area. And they were tethered, of course, to specific kinds of resources that is at the edge of the forest, one, and two, they had to be close to water. They did not have the wherewithal to be able to go far away from water. Eventually, after two and a half million or so years ago, when we could look at hominids who we think may be ancest directly ancestral to us, there were other kinds of adaptations, specifically the development of culture, what we would call culture, uh, beginnings, uh, beginning with the appearance of stone implements. Being you mean we become, or our, our prior forms, become tool makers as much as two million years ago? At least two and a half million years ago, as a matter mm -hmm. of fact, yes. Uh, that's when we find the first evidence in Olduvai Gorge and in a couple other places of uh, stone objects. Very crude, very simple, but usable, but never for the accruement uh, or the, the getting of food, but for the processing of food, breaking nuts, breaking bone. Uh, maybe uh, there might be some uh, with Homo habilis of skinning. Uh, there's some evidence of flakes being used for skinning, but generally speaking, they they pick up a rock, they hit it with another rock, they may knock off two or three things, and then they use that original, the second rock for smashing, getting at the marrow, etc. And these were not hunters and gatherers; these were scavengers. These, um, what species is that we're talking? Homo habilis. That's Homo habilis. Would one, since they were in Central Africa, would one then assume that they had 
the degree of melanin which produces darker skin. Yes. So one might very well say that if you divide the human species into color-coded races, which I know is not the best way to uh, divide them, but still, that's the way we do it socially mm -hmm. uh, far too often. Uh, would it then be the case that, um, in essence, original uh, Homo sapiens was, uh, was Negroid? I wouldn't use the term Negroid. A high melanin content. A high melanin yeah. content. Therefore, they were dark. Yes. They were blacker. Yeah. They were dark. Yes. So when do we begin to develop the kind of skin coloration that goes with being Caucasian, and how? Well, one thing we shouldn't forget is that once uh, humans got out of Africa, because we're we're talking about a, an original member of Homo in Africa with a dark skin. And then at some point, probably around two million years ago, uh, early homos started to move outside of Africa. Once that happens, then uh, the species, if it's a single species, has a, a huge geographical distribution. And as we find today, you will find that skin color reflects the, in, uh, the uh, ultraviolet incidence. If you live in an area with high ultraviolet levels, you have a lot of melanin to protect the skin. And if you live in an area with low ultraviolet, then you have pale skin because you have to be able to produce enough vitamin D in the skin, so you can't use all that melanin. Let's, uh, with, that, with regard to that one particular change, change in, um, in melanin distribution, in the surface skin and thus in visible skin color. Let's explain how evolution really works. Somebody who is a more melanin loaded and darker in coloration moving north is more likely to expire early than somebody who varies in the less black direction. Is that, is that so right? Whilst natural selection is working, the, the argument is that uh, if an individual by chance has a character that's better suited to the environment, then that individual will leave more uh, uh, children to, to the next generation. That individual will live longer and thus leave more children. Exactly. That's what Darwin means when he speaks of natural selection. The trait is selected by its um, value in that environment. But quite often what you get is balancing selection. So the argument would be if you live in a tropical area with lots of ultraviolet, you need to shield the skin uh, because mm -hmm. otherwise you get skin cancers. This is a major problem now with people who don't have enough melanin uh, living in tropical areas. And if you live in the north, for example, uh, in an area with low uh, ultraviolet incidence, there is no problem. Uh, the problem there is to get enough sunlight through the skin to form vitamin D. So wherever you are, you are, there will be a balance between avoiding skin cancer and being able to form enough vitamin D in the skin. And what about all the other human characteristics that evolve further and to, uh, along with our becoming Homo sapiens or Homo sapiens sapiens uh, beyond that point two million years ago where our true answers, ancestors first emerged? How did we become as tall as we are, as erect as we are, as intelligent as we are. Well, this, of course, is the adaptations that uh, uh, Bob was speaking about, but there, yeah. do, there are different kinds of adaptations. There's an adaptation to one's environment. There's an, uh, an ecological uh, answer here. There's also a biological answer. But after two million years, in my opinion, um, the cultural aspect becomes uh, a, a dominant one in some ways, yet we still can't figure out, we still do not know the actual relationship between the 
evolution of the brain, let's say, and the evolution of culture. We can see the evolution of culture in, this, in the form of stone tool technology changing through time directly as a continuum, actually, in most instances. Whereas because the fossil record is much more fragmented, it's a little more difficult to reconstruct the relationship. But if we look at it from, uh, to me, a, a, a quite a different way, we say, look, here are these people who left Africa. They're darker. Yet they survived in all of these other environments. And therefore, clearly there's not just a biological determinant here. There's something else going on. And it clearly is what we in anthropology would call culture. And that is a develop and culture is related to, of course, the development in the brain, the development of the brain. And the development of the brain, whatever parts of the brain is developing, uh, will also change directly, functionally, how we look. That is, the shape of our skull, the nature of our skull, etc. So I would suggest that after a million and a half years ago, from the neck down, we're not very different than our ancestors, Homo erectus. The changes occurred up in the skull, and that specifically in the brain. And that's Bob's expertise, is the evolution of hominid brains. And he could talk a little more about it. But it's those aspects that eventually lead to what we call crea creativity, language, um, memory, eye-hand coordination, these kinds of things. An interesting point along those lines, I said this again before you, just before we stop for some commercials. This is the tease. Um, namely that Neanderthal, as far as we know, we've got lots of Neanderthal skulls, had a larger brain, even in relation to total body size, I gather, than does Homo sapiens. Yet Neanderthal is extinct, and we, with somewhat smaller brains, have survived. If they had bigger brains, weren't they more intelligent? And if they were, shouldn't they have been more adaptive to changes in environment, climate, and so on? And shouldn't they have dominated rather than mere homo sapiens? We'll return in pursuit of that issue after we pause for this. Our guest tonight, as we're talking about the origins of man and the evolution of man down to the present moment, and perhaps even beyond the present moment, a question that we table temporarily is, where will we be a million years from now? Uh, my guests in this discussion are Robert Martin, who is Vice President for Academic Affairs at the Field Museum, where he is curator as well in biological anthropology. He's also a member of the Committee on Evolutionary Biology at the University of Chicago. And to give all of the credentials, adjunct curator of anthropology also at the University of Chicago. James Phillips has his PhD from anthropology department at the University of Chicago and for a long time has been one of the leading people in the anthropology department at the University of Illinois at Chicago. He is a curator of Near Eastern and North African anthropology at the Field Museum. I come back to the question I posed a moment ago. If Neanderthal had a bigger brain, how come he didn't survive and we did? Well, it's true that Neanderthals had bigger brains than we do, about 10% bigger. Mm -hmm. But uh, as, a, as we've already established, Homo sapiens actually lived alongside Neanderthals for at least 100,000 years. 30,000 years ago, Homo sapiens had brains 10% bigger. And so what has happened is in our own lineage, the brain has got smaller by about 10%. And the Our brains are shrinking. Well, uh, the th one thing you have to consider is it's difficult talking about brain size because it's related to body size, to among sure. other things. And uh, the fact of the matter is that our bodies got smaller over 30,000 years. And uh, in fact, it was one of my students who raised this point, uh, which is that 
recently body sizes started getting bigger again mm -hmm. in several human populations and said, well, surely brains are getting bigger again. I didn't actually know the answer at the time, but I've checked it out and our brains are getting bigger again. Right. So if we carry on increasing in body size, we'll end up the same as we were 30,000 years ago. I'm a mere, I was a mere 6'1". I'm beginning to shrink a bit. My son is 6'5". Would it follow mm. that he would probably have a larger brain. Absolutely. Uh, you can uh, measure that very nicely in modern human populations. One of the big things that relates to brain size is, is difference in body mm -hmm. size. So a big person normally will have a bigger brain than a small person. But that doesn't answer the question, it seems to me, that because we have bigger brains or smaller brains isn't necessarily the important element here. It's what the brain looks like all right, and how we, the brain arrived to the point where we are today. That is, that allows us to speak and communicate in a very different way than our ancestors. Well, of course, did. we cannot possibly know what the brain of Neanderthal or of any other creature that we know only as a fossil, what the brain looked like. We can possibly estimate its size, but not its inner structure. Actually, we can, and Bob and his students act in uh, an article in Nature uh, showed how we can do that. How will you do that? How would you do that? We can make some guesses, uh, educated guesses about uh, brain uh, structure. Jim is absolutely right. It's the internal wiring that matters, and yeah. size isn't going to tell you too much, particularly because it varies with body size. But one of the important things is uh, new molecular data, and my own work on times of origin suggests that Neanderthals might have separated from us as much as a million years ago. Now, if that were true, the brain was much smaller a million years ago, and it means that Neanderthal mm -hmm. brains expanded in parallel to ours. And so there's quite a good chance that they developed different mechanisms in their brains to us. Clearly, one major key to culture and its development and its elaboration is language. Do we have any idea of whether, say, Neanderthal was capable of real syntactic language of the sort that we've got? There's Do we have any idea... W w when we first became capable of that? There's, there's always been a question about it. Um, I would go at it in a different way from the biological realm. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and one of the questions about the biological realm is, did they have hyaloid bones or did they not? And you need a larynx, in other words. And there's a man named Philip Lieberman who always says they didn't. There were some other people who said, now we found in a Neanderthal skeleton in Israel, that called they call it Moshe at a psycho Kabara, the hyaloid bones. So maybe they can without, make the Without sounds. that, you couldn't produce... The same resonating sounds, stream yeah. of sound. Exactly, that exactly. Plus you but frankly, spoken language. Yeah, but frankly, exactly. Frankly, you know, there's a difference between commu communication and language. Yeah. That is, there are different kinds of languages. Clearly, chimps communicate. Gorillas communicate. Many animals communicate. All animals communicate with one another. We have language. So what's language? Language is a symbolic system of sounds which we could recognize. The question is, you you asked when that might have happened. I would argue that language evolved sometime around 200,000 years ago with the advent of what we might call uh, uh, Homo sapiens. And I say this from a cultural, it has nothing to do with biology here. Um, if you look at the, rap, at the rate of change in Homo erectus, who I believe is directly ancestral us and appeared on this earth somewhere around one and a half to 1.8 million years ago, if you look at the archaeological signature of Homo erectus, across the globe, whether it's in Asia, whether it's in Africa, whether it's in Europe, you will see the change is very, very slow. Very, very slow. That is, an as the archaeological complex is called Ashelian. Early Ashelian, middle Ashelian, late Ashelian, whether it's in Asia, whether it's in Africa, it looks the same, relatively the same. 
That means to me that people are learning and passing on information about this by repetition, by by imitation. Fathers, children. Uh, you mean there's a way of life, there's a technology that goes with it. Uh, there are probably kinship systems and so on, all of which are communicated across generations. Correct. There has to be. The lore is, is moved. Stone tool tradition is very slowly. Well, around 200,000 years ago, you get a very, very different uh, signature a in, great, in the cultural A great leap record. forward. A great way. leap forward, yet it's found, by the way, and this is where Bob, Bob and I don't have an argument about this, mm -hmm. but, but it's a very intriguing thing. We find this cultural divide with Neanderthal, that is, with Homo neanderthalensis, they develop a system of changing how they produce objects, the kinds of things they do with the objects, which is radically, radically different than what we find in Homo erectus. Yet it's within the Homo erectus time period when these begin, these changes begin. So I can. So what I'm saying is that there clearly is a, 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 a. a an evolution, shall we say, which we can follow archaeologically in stone tool technology from one level to the next, whereas the fossil record being broken, right, we have to extrapolate and, and figure out who is, yet we, who is doing it and, and why. Yet we do have archaeological signature and biological signature together in many different places, which we call Middle Paleolithic period, whether it's in Africa, whether it's in Europe. Now, is that at the same time that... Uh, that Homo sapiens is beginning to really get out of Africa and spread around the world? That was much earlier. Uh, when, does, when do those migrations begin? It began approximately one and a half to 1.8 million years ago. The earliest hominid we know of that's well dated out of Africa is at a place called Demenisi in the Republic of Georgia. The next is at a site called Ubedia in Israel, uh, just southwest uh, of the present day uh, Sea of Galilee. Uh, and actually, if you think about it, the site of Ubedia is a very intriguing site because it replicates Olduvai Gorge, bed to at Olduvai Gorge. Mm -hmm. That is when we find the earliest Homo erectus there. You look at the archaeology associated with it, the context, the climate, the environment, etc., and it's replicated in Israel in this place. So the first human movement out of Africa is in the direction of what we now call the Near East and the Through Middle East. Through the Levantine Corridor and, the and then eventually to the uh, southeast, to Asia first. Europe mm -hmm. receives people much later on because of, Bob could tell you, but it has to do with environmental things. No one's going to live and in And the New before. World, so-called, that is the Western Hemisphere, do, is it still uh, verified wisdom or, um, or consensual wisdom that human beings don't enter this hemisphere until they cross over the Bering uh, uh, Whichever way they come, it wasn't earlier than 15 or so thousand years Only ago. Only 15,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How could that have been the case? Why didn't m humankind spread into this part of the world as well? Well, I, it had a few million years to do so. Uh, the only route were at that time would have been over the Bering Strait, so no. presumably... Uh, or by uh, sea. Well, flying boats, yes. It could have, but uh, the overland route would have been over the yeah. Bering Strait. And... Uh, uh, you would need pretty sophisticated survival skills to be able to do that. But I, I would like to say something about putting earlier dates on things. If your record is very good, this is a safe thing to do. And so the way we date the first origins of uh, the first arrival of people in the New World is from the first archaeological evidence. Now, if you have a pretty complete record, that's a reasonable thing to do. If you have big gaps in the fossil record, then these things could have been a lot earlier. Uh, now, the, the, the age of uh, 
people moving into the new world has been pushed back recently by findings in Siberia above the Arctic Circle, uh, which doubled the known age of, of stone tools in that area, close to the migration routes. Uh, uh, these dates can only ever get earlier. We're, uh, they're not going to get it. We know that things happen by, say, 10 or 20,000 years ago, but uh, they can only get earlier when we find new evidence. The question is, when do you reach the point where you're happy that you've actually got the final date? There um, was a, f a find announced a few years ago, and we had the people involved in that on this program, as a matter of fact, uh, something on the East Coast, which uh, supposed, which which was claimed by its, um, the people who dug it up, to be evidence of New World settlement as early as 30,000 years ago, rather than 15,000 years ago. There are many sites, uh, let's say, uh, finds, in Canada, in the United States, and in Mexico, mm -hmm. which have been attributed to uh, the arrival of, of um, Homo sapiens sapiens 35, 40,000, 50,000 yeah. years ago. Uh, none of them have panned out. That is, there's always a problem. All right, you have a radiocarbon date here, and then you have the archaeology 50 meters away. And then the geologists try to reconstruct the relationship between the two, and there's always something wrong. All right, so therefore, the, the firmest dates we have, which is actually quite intriguing, they are not in North America, they are in South America which is really interesting. At Monteverde in Chile, there are some sites, uh, equivocal sites in, in Chile also and in Venezuela that may be 15 or so thousand years ago. I would accept those dates, by the way. Now, in North America, the dates that I would accept most often are the dates around 11,003, 11,005, what we call Clovis. So therefore, right now, at this present moment, the earliest dated sites that are acceptable to most archaeologists and most scholars are in South America and way south in South America, not in North America. So when you suggested about boats and, and, and walking across the Bering Land Bridge, um, remember people arrived in Australia a minimum of 40,000 years ago. All the evidence suggests they arrived in Australia and they did not walk on water. They had across uh, uh, what we call the Torres Straits, which was always water. Uh, where uh, at New Guinea was connected to mainland Southeast Asia, but New Guinea so was they, never connected. So to they Australia. had a water culture. They had boats as far back as they, that. Boats might not be the proper term. You could Something throw that a log. Float, yeah. but, uh, they came by water to Australia at yeah. least 40,000 years ago. Why do they look so different from much of the rest of mankind, the Australian aboriginals? They didn't look very different than the people in New Guinea at that time, where they're called Australoids or Australasians, and mm -hmm. uh, Bob could speak about that more. Well, again, uh, as I said, the modern human population is very widespread, and if you had any animal species spread, that widespread, you would find regional differences. And the question is how significant are these. And I, my own feeling is that the differences we see are relatively trivial, like skin color or skull shape and so forth. There's nothing really significant in those differences and exactly the same pattern that I would see in any widespread animal, although we're the wi most widespread mammal that I know. We, we've really uh, spread uh, almost over the entire globe now. And, uh, and the thing that uh, I would really emphasize is that you can only really get differences, uh, deep differences, if you get separation. And all of the genetic evidence suggests that we've always been a single interbreeding population, and so there has always been gene flow, even with the most isolated population. Now, when we come to genes and gene flow, when we come to 
analysis of uh, genetic composition through DNA, you run into a very interesting and kind of startling fact. And that is that we and the chimpanzees share essentially the, the same DNA. At the most, there's only a 2% difference in ours and theirs, yet we are clearly very, very different creatures. How does one account for that? I know, in fact, Bob Martin, that you've worked on that and you've written on that. Well, uh, certainly it's a, it's a point that's interested me greatly. In fact, the 2% difference is precisely what you would expect for two mammal species that separated 8 million years ago. Uh, Ian Tattersall uh, uh, wrote in one of his books that we should, to put this in perspective, that there's a 40% similarity between me and a banana. So all living things share a vast amount of DNA. And uh, so it's it's only to be expected that things that diverged only recently mm -hmm. should be very, very similar genetically. So, And that 2% is really quite significant. And uh, we're, now that we have the uh, human genome sequence and they're beginning to sequence the chimpanzee genome, we're beginning to find that that 2% global figure doesn't tell us too much about what's happening locally. And we're beginning to find quite striking differences between us and chimpanzees in local clusters of genes. I've always been fascinated by, and this is in my area, that is psychology rather than anthropology or paleoanthropology, by the attempts to um, use chimpanzees or gorillas and give them uh, human language. Uh, not in spoken form, though that's been attempted also, but rather using uh, uh, American Sign Language or equivalents equivalent sign language just from elsewhere in the world. And you know, the, you know the, that literature, and you know of all of those nice experiments. Washoe, right. Washoe was one of the great uh, mm -hmm. attempts in, uh, in Nevada, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. at the, I think at Reno, at the University of Nevada in Reno. Uh, there were so many other such attempts. The famous um, chimp at Columbia that they named Nim Chimpsky uh, was supposedly trained linguistically, another one at the University of Washington. I met one of the first linguistic chimps who was uh, whom they attempted to train in spoken language. This was, um, uh, what was its name? Uh, Keith and Kathy Hayes uh, trained this chimp. Uh, Washer. No, no, not Washer. No, it was earlier. I don't know the name of it. Yeah. It was a, a female chimp from Orange Park, Florida. Uh, and um, they Vicky. tried. Vicky. Vicky, that's right. That's Vicky, right. exactly. Right. And they tried to give it a vocabulary, a spoken vocabulary. And Vicky could say the word cup or at least it sounded like cup, if you wanted to believe it was cup, and mama, which was a bark, ma, ma. Uh, but she had a comprehension vocabulary, they demonstrated, of four or five hundred words. Just as recently we've had newspaper stories about a, a dog, is that dog in Germany, who shows a comprehension vocabulary of 300 words or something of the sort. Uh, but with the, uh, the signing chimps, supposedly they were really... Uh, or were they not? There's a controversy there. Has there been real communication? Has there been language? Has it led to transmission of knowledge across generations? Well, there is transmission of knowledge across generations, which isn't just instinctual amongst chimpanzees. I mean, Jane Goodall established that a while back mm -hmm. uh, uh, when she observed that um, mother chimps would strip uh, branches and then put the branches into a termite nest and then they eat the termites and, the, and their ch her female children actually were able to replicate that and then go ahead and do it. So you're transmitting knowledge from one generation to the other generation. I mean, how would they have survived if they couldn't, as a matter of fact? Any animal species. Where we're different, it seems to me, where we're different is, this. I keep going back to the same 
term that we use, and you could use it any way you want, but the term is culture. I mean, there's something quite different of Homo sapiens or our lineage from chimpanzees or from gorillas. We can do things they can't. We do things they can't, not can do, we do. But then We've the, evolved in a very different way than they have. Then the question we, is if you could help them develop real language and maybe tool a language, get that modern linguist to construct a language that will really work for the chimp uh, larynx, if, if, if possible, or for chimp signing systems, uh, could they, would they then have a takeoff into higher culture, the chimps themselves? I don't think so. Why not? Personally, I don't. Um, I don't think they have the br their brain is not like They're ours. Not smart. Their brain is. Yeah. It has nothing to do with being smart. Well, doesn't it's it really? Their, the, it's not structured the same way as our brain, which includes these kinds of things like language and and uh, creativity and and transmission of knowledge in very very different ways. And yeah, I I don't think that we've been with all of the experiments that have been done on chimpanzees and some gorillas that there's been any uh, indication of anything close to human language with its syntax and, and its novelty of construction. And uh, you mentioned the case of Nim Chomsky, which yeah. was uh, a, a pun on Noam uh, Chomsky, who was Chomsky, a, right. who was a uh, linguist. And the research worker, Herbert Terrace, who started off working with Nim Chimsky, originally thought that he would find evidence and uh, ended up criticizing the entire field, and I think justifiably. One of the things he pointed out that struck, stuck in my mind was that the, uh, the so-called sentences produced by uh, great apes with sign language have been heavily edited. And so in the transcript, you would uh, hear... Uh, uh, washo want banana, but what in fact was signed was washo washo want want washo want banana banana want, and that's a totally different uh, thing. So uh, a lot of this was people reading too much into it, and and what Her Herbert Terrace pointed out was absolutely true was that there were no double-blind experiments. It's absolutely essential so that we don't read things into what great apes do, you need to have a double check in your experiment to make sure that the experiment uh, is not influencing what's being recorded. But I'd like to comment on the question of biological uh, apparatus for language. One unique feature of humans is that in the first two years of life, our larynx descends. And this creates the voice box that allows us to have spoken language. And this is why Vicky was unable to produce many mm -hmm. sounds similar to us. She simply didn't have the apparatus. And that is unique to humans. Vicky did have real attachment to her parents. They, they brought her into their own home and raised her as their own daughter, dressed her in little pinafores and so on. Uh, and then a little bit later on, when Vicky was three or four, maybe five or six, the Hayes divorced. <laughs> and Vicky died within a few months. One might say of a broken heart. Well, one of the one, one of the problems is if you take a look at at chimpanzee evolution, quote, or gorilla evolution, they didn't become us. You know, yeah. they stayed uh, relatively close to what they are today. Whereas we change. They stay sweet as they are. Yeah. We pause. We're late for some commercials. We'll take care of those, and then directly back to Robert Martin and James Phillips. And a perspective I'd like to pursue, if only briefly, before we go to the phones, is. What can we expect with regard to uh, the human species on into the distant future? If you project a million years forward, will there be a, a new form? Or does it require five million years, or will it never happen? We return directly after 
these words. And I hereby announce that in 10 minutes or so, we will be going to the telephones. And thus, the phone lines are now open and available to you. If you want to join to pose a question, uh, the number, of course, 591-7200. 591-7200. And if you're listening on the Internet at some greater distance and would rather reach us via email, the email address, extension 720, as one word, at tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E dot com. So, extension 720 at tribune.com or 591-7200. Get your calls in right now, and uh, we'll be with you, as I have already promised, within 10 minutes. The great question is whether I will keep that promise. I think I will. But I put to you just a moment ago the next obvious question online. If uh, mankind emerges down a lineage uh, that we've been reviewing, and if his original ancestor, original in that it's the beginning of the hominid line that leads to us, uh, dates to some eight million years ago. Project forward another million. Let's see, who was the last close relative of ours? Um, Neanderthal was a, was a parallel branch. Who was the last direct lineal descendant, or rather um, uh, lineal source of us? Uh, how far back? It's, oh, at least a million and a half years ago, Homo erectus. Yeah. And that's Homo erectus. Mm -hmm. So cast forward a million and a half years. Can we assume there will be a different form descended from us? It's very difficult uh, for us to look into the future on this. It's it's very much like human history. The uh, It's said that the only lesson you can learn from history is that you can't learn lessons from history. And it's very much the same with evolutionary biology, it's easy to look at what happened in the past and to produce possible explanations, but uh, to be able to guess what's going to happen in the future is very difficult. People imagine that brains will get bigger and bigger and so forth, but uh, I, I find it very difficult to project what might happen. One thing we can say is that uh, things like epidemic diseases will probably have a major effect on uh, particular genes for resistance and so if we had a repeat of a flu epidemic or something mm -hmm. like an anthrax germ or, or something like that then uh, people who happen to have the right kinds of constitution would survive better and so that kind of uh, catastrophe could have an influence on uh, basic disease resistance but in terms of our brain size and so on it's very difficult to project. The only other thing I would say is that there has been a progressive decrease in our jaw size. And this has happened independently in different populations. It's happening in America, it's happening in Europe, it's happening in uh, Asia, where the jaws are getting smaller, such that the wisdom teeth, the final molar teeth, quite often don't erupt anymore. I don't have my wisdom teeth, for example, and I'm missing a couple of premolars upstairs as well. And this is a general thing. Nobody really knows why it's happening, but it's a fact that there is a trend to, towards having smaller jaws and fewer teeth. So Does maybe. that somehow fit us better for adaptation or less well, or is it irrelevant? Well, uh, you find the same thing in urban foxes, foxes that begin to live uh, next door to human habitations uh -huh. and have it easy and eat on refuge. Uh, end up with uh, losing teeth and having smaller jaws. So it may simply be because all of our food is processed yes. and we don't have to chew um, anymore, that we're, we're simply producing smaller jaws. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I agree with Bob. And if we look at evolution of our hominid ancestors and the evolution of culture, up until approximately 10,000 years ago or so, 
all of us were hunters and gatherers. Right? We lived in small groups. We exploited a series of different kinds of game wherever it might be. And the population of this earth was very, very small. And when, you began, when we began to get more and more people surviving because they had shifted their subsistence base to agricultural base, et cetera, where we had permanent, uh, we had enormous amount of food kept for uh, an entire year, et cetera, which reduced the amount of movement of population, that's when we begin to find, A, the diseases that Bob was referring to. I mean, we begin to find diseases like cholera or uh, TB or typhus or typhoid, which never occur amongst hunters and gatherers before that. At least we don't find that in the fossil record. Uh, Isn't it also asserted by many theorists that you don't really get higher civilization emerging? You don't get um, written language emerging, say, and social differentiation among along a number of different status levels and specialized social roles and so on. Until? Until you get stationary agriculture. That's correct. There's no question about it. Why should that have been the case? Actually, it's not just agriculture. It's intriguing. In different parts of the world, the process is different. In the old world, specifically in the Levant, that is that area of Israel, mm-hmm. Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, uh, that area, where settled life first began approximately twelve to 14,000 years ago, we had settled life much earlier than we had the manipulation of plants and animals. Uh, whereas in Mexico, let's say, or in China or in other places where the same process occurred, or in Africa, where the same process occurred, occurred in a different way. You, want, you had the manipulation of the plants first, and, and when those plants reached a certain stage where they could be harvested in a, either a, in a different way or they got larger, then we begin to get settled life. And all of this, generally speaking, is based on a specific resource that is cereal grains. And cereal grains are natural to the Levant. That's where wheat and barley comes from, the original habitat. It's also where lentils and vetch and chickpeas, uh, garbanzo means hummus, in other words. It's where almonds and olives and cattle and sheep and pig and goats all coexisted. And it's in that place that we get this first settled life and then the manipulation of these plants and animals. It was a very relatively quick process there, and it's w- there, of course, in the Near East, whether it's uh, Egypt, Mesopotamia, uh, Israel, Palestine, that area, uh, where civilization, quote, whatever that term means, uh, set, uh, village life, um, um, uh, social differentiation, social hierarchy, non-egalitarianism, warfare, rapine, misery, um, and, of course, wonderful cities and like uh, Ur and uh, Jerusalem and uh, Jericho. And All New York. Developed. And New York. And New York and Paris, <laughs> which are in the direct line of descent yes. from those yeah. places. Yeah. Uh, we are going to pause right now for another quick round of commercials and then on to the phones. I see one or two lines are available. For a while they were all taken, but now uh, a few are available again. If you're trying to reach us, try once again. 591 7200, the number. And if you'd rather reach us by email, particularly our internet listeners off in distant parts of the world uh, who are listening tonight, or rather listening perhaps this afternoon, if you're listening in Australia or Japan or uh, thereabouts, uh, you reach us at extension 720 at tribune.com. Extension 720 at tribune.com. We will be on to your calls and emails, your queries, and for that matter, uh, your assertions after we pause for this. And we will go directly to the telephones, 591 
7200 is the number. Some lines available if you want to join us to pose a question or offer a thought, do so instantly. And you are on the air. Good evening. Uh, yes, uh, I want to thank you, gentlemen, for a very enjoyable drive from uh, Champaign up to Madison this evening. And anyway, I was uh, one, referring back to uh, one of your earlier comments, which was that the great apes uh, ceased to evolve uh, because environmental conditions were such that there was no need to, basically. Well, I'm wondering if, given technological advance in recent years or past centuries, if we're so uh, protected now by our technology that there's not much reason for humankind to continue to evolve in the future. Yeah, I think there's a, a lot in that argument. Uh, many people would say that natural selection in humans has almost stopped because we have so much control over, over our environment. And it's really uh, environment, and particularly environmental change, that has driven evolution of plants and animals. And so uh, by controlling our environment and removing risks of various kinds, we're actually removing factors that might have uh, selected in a particular direction. This not, may not matter too much unless uh, we lose vital things and the environment changes and, and we're no longer able to respond. Thank you very much. We thank you, sir. But um, what if the cataclysmic changes in climate that are sometimes predicted, as in one recent film that uh, is getting a lot of attention, mm -hmm. which, which also is discredited by expert observers or expert commentators, but what if Gross changing climate occurs. But, gro but gross changing climate occurred many times during the last two and a half million years. During the yes, Pleistocene. but would it have evolutionary consequences? It did it have evolutionary again? consequences because the people had, there were only several ways that they could adapt to it. Either they could move, get out of the way, or they could adapt to it. Off, some groups adapted, <laughs> other groups died off, and other groups moved. And that's how we got the movement, that's how we... In my opinion, how we got the movement of populations across many places in the old world. Remember, the amount of glaciation in, north, in the northern latitudes shifted many times over the last two million years. I'll tell you a, a quick and I think moderately amusing story. Uh, years ago, a fellow came on this program. He did a book titled The Cooling, in which he predicted that a new ice age was coming and the really dramatic finding that he uh, 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 pressed upon was that in 15,000 years, uh, Chicago will be covered by two miles of ice. And I thought that a little bit startling. Uh, my brother is a, is a really quite well-known and quite accomplished climatologist who's written on all sorts of things of that sort. And I called him the next day uh, at his university and gave him that prediction. He said, the guy's got it all wrong. I said, well, that's a relief. He said, it's more likely 5,000 years instead of 15,000 <laughs> that this city will be under two miles of ice. Uh, new ice age as it will, once was before as it was mm -hmm. it will it will be again mm -hmm. what will the consequences be for a big ice age descending glaciers descending across most of north america would that have it will obviously change the way we live and where we live will it also change the human stock well uh, 
the, the question is whether our technology can cope with it. If it can't, then we'll get a repeat of what happened before. There is a theory of pulse evolution in Africa, for example, that every time you had one of these major periods of cooling, that it led to change. And you can see this in the hoof mammals in Africa, in the carnivores, uh -huh. and, and probably in hominids as, as well. So uh, certainly, the, it, again, it's this question of, of major environmental change bringing about evolutionary change, and we can see that and uh, so if we did have a major period of climatic cooling and uh, it was too much for us to cope with technologically then we would see uh, all kinds of changes probably and not only that the basic difference between what was happening during the pleistocene the last era of the ice age etc is that the population of the earth was much smaller than it is today and therefore mm -hmm. we have so many more billions of people compared to millions of people uh, being able to cope with this uh, radical climate change, a cooling or warming, whatever it might be, whatever it might be, um, would uh, would it seems to me have major repercussions it will probably on our population. Th it will thin out the tribe. Correct. It'll yeah. thin out the tribe. <laughs> but whether it's by warfare or whether it's by yeah. disease or something else, but yes, yes. We go back to the phones. Five nine one seventy two hundred. Good evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Uh, I was wondering if human beings today possess or not do not possess any parts, human organs, uh, that uh, prehistoric man possessed or did not possess. I, I read somewhere where an appendix was used to uh, digest grass. That's why we, we really don't need it anymore. And being a follically impaired 60-year-old male myself, um, losing my hair, I can't picture a prehistoric man with a bald head sitting in a cave. Um, I thought the hair was more for protection. Are we losing this more? Do we need the appendix, the, the fingernails, and stuff like that? Yeah, there's a, a bit of a confusion about the appendix. If you look at the human gut or the gut of any primate, uh, there's a blind sac called the cecum. And the cecum is what is used to digest plant material. There are bacteria that live in there and can break down plant material. So the cecum is bigger in herbivorous mammals than it is in carnivorous mammals. But uh, a strange feature of great apes and humans is that they have a little worm-like appendage called the appendix, which is at the end of the cecum. And so that's not directly connected with digestion of grass or any other plant matter. And it's said to be vestigial. Uh, but there is some medical evidence that if you have it removed, uh, it, it actually isn't a good idea. It, it, it does play a part in the immune system, apparently. So you can live without it. I had my appendix taken out about 30 years ago. I'm doing reasonably well. Uh, but the suggestion is that it's actually quite useful for the immune system. So even the appendix doesn't seem to be as vestigial as people thought. So I can't think of any uh, feature of my body that I would regard as, as a vestige. But his, but his real question has to do with whether we're going to retain our hair or not. Isn't that correct? Um, and I happen to be follically uh, uh, challenged myself. So I would like the uh, like to know myself if this is going to uh, change through time, Bob. <laughs> well, I can't see what functional utility uh, a, a thick head of hair has today in civilized urban life. 
I don't think it does at all. Other than uh, it attracts or 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 attracts of the opposite speech, uh, the opposite gender. Excuse me. Works both right. ways. A guy yeah, who shaves does. his head completely and polishes it is often considered quite attractive. Sure, look at Michael well. Jordan, absolutely. Yeah. But I, I would come back to this question of variability. If you take any population, you're going to find natural variability. If you look at male orangutans, for example, the amount of head hair varies tremendously between individual males, and mm -hmm. the same is true of chimpanzees. And certainly, so I don't think it's necessarily true that cavemen uh, 200,000 years ago necessarily all had a nice head of hair. Uh, they, it's quite possible that they were bald cavemen, just as uh, they're bald men today. And when we do have pictures of human beings that is drawn on cave walls, etc., some have hair and some do not. You mean we've got bald cavemen drawn? I wouldn't say that. They're stick figures. It's very difficult yeah. to tell. But if you look at the if you look at the women that are portrayed in these uh -huh. Venuses, etc., in the mid uh, 25,000, 30,000 years ago, you find that. Uh, um, hair is very important. That is, many of these figurines, female uh -huh. figurines carved in Europe, etc., have coifs, shall we say. I mean, very well done ones, too. We go back to the phones, 591-7200, and you are next on the air. Good evening. Hi, good evening, gentlemen. Yes, with sir. The, with the history of evolution being created and cataloged every day and us being in the age of communication, we won't have to worry about scribes uh, interpreting what we're determining these days. But in four or 500 years from now, we'll be able to look back and say whether or not evolution is true or not by the continuation of the evolutionary theory. Is it possible that the subject of technology preventing evolution from continuing is just a way to support the potential that evolution doesn't continue? Well, uh, I don't quite understand the question let me let me th i think i understand let me get back to it. if it seems to me that technology doesn't impede per se evolution it can't it means that we today using a techn technological system which is very advanced and being able to cope with the environment in very different ways has an effect on evolution but evolution is always occurring it hasn't stopped but it's possible technology will prevent it from growing at the rate of... Well, you're, think, you're thinking about human beings, but we see a good deal of continued evolutionary change in other species, do we not? Right. Oh, absolutely. And one thing that should perhaps be emphasized is that uh, evolution by natural selection is not a theory. It's, it has to happen. Uh, Darwin's idea was that if you had a, a population that is growing... Uh, geometrically at some stage resources will limit that population and once you have competition then individuals that happen to be better suited to the environment of the time will leave more offspring than those that uh, genetically are not so well suited and that's automatic you can run it on the computer it's just bound to happen with any plant and animal species uh, if the environment changes the only effect technology can have as Jim uh, was saying is that we can uh, remove some of the environmental pressures so the the environment may change but with our technology we can mask that environmental change and so that it won't have any evolutionary effect but uh, if whenever we get the conditions that Darwin saw for natural selection evolution is going to happen in any organism including us our thanks to the caller and next online good evening uh, hello yes, I have sir. another digestive sort of related question um, I wonder if there's an evolutionary component to the fact that 
humans have to um, cook their food to avoid becoming ill, and other animals don't seem to have to have that problem. Well, that's fascinating. Uh, I, I don't know whether any animals, they don't have cooking procedures. Maybe they like to throw something into fire, but I think that's not the case either. Every, all other animals eat food without any kind of preparation, don't they? Correct. Uh, I mean, they may have some kind of preparation, but cooking is not one of them. No. Um, we, we do the cooking. Uh, but cooking, uh, that is, the idea of, of putting food into fire, whether it's meat or some other, is relatively late in, our, in, in the scheme of the evolution of our hominid ancestors. Um, there are some people that claim uh, uh, that we had fire, de deliberate fire, at a million years ago. I don't accept that. Uh, I would suggest that deliberate fire that is making a hearth and then putting food into it and cooking is no earlier than 500 or so, 600,000 years ago, in the middle of the range of Homo erectus or towards the end of Homo erectus. Um, and therefore, our ancestors prior to that all right, may have eaten food that had been frozen, by the way, if they were living in areas, right, or may have eaten food that had been processed by other animals even or smashed or... or uh, um, uh, eaten or I should say regurgitated even by uh, by other animals. In other words, most of our ancestors were scavengers up until a certain time, and they ate raw food. Um, so cooking is a late phenomenon, and therefore clearly our ancestors, who are directly ancestral to us, were able to process raw food. Well, thank you. Uh, we thank you, sir. Interesting call. Uh, five nine one seven two double zero. There are now at last. Some lines available. If you've been trying to reach us, do make another try. Let me read you one uh, a quick email. When were the first burial rites observed, expressing the belief in an afterworld? Also, what allowed for this type of belief in the development of the human brain? I think uh, Jim should answer the question on burials. Uh, the earliest burials that we know of, deliberate burials, are with Neanderthal, it so happens, somewhere around 150 or so thousand years ago. In Europe and in the Near East, uh, we have uh, specific evidence of pits being uh, dug and uh, internments being um, placed in there, the burial being placed, some occasionally with grave goods, whether it was a piece of uh, special flint or whether it was a, um, uh, an antler or whether it was a rack of antler. Or in one instance, we have some evidence of ochre, that is ferric oxide, uh, being strewn across the uh, individual. Uh, so Neanderthal is the first evidence, during Neanderthal, the first evidence of burials. There are people, by the way, many of my, co of my colleagues who don't agree with that. That is, they would suggest that none of the Neanderthals were buried, but the archaeologists who excavate them would say that they were. Th that question is part of a larger and fascinating question and a great per um, but confusing perspective having to do with human ideation and the systems that we invent as part of our adaptation. And surely religion generally has to be seen as having some very significant adaptive value. But when and how it emerges is a great question that's never been resolved, just as we don't know how language first emerged. We've had many theorists who account for religion one way or the other. I have taught a course in the psychology of religion for some years, and if you go to theorizing about the origins, you've got Freud's uh, uh, view, which is quite different from, say, um, what's certainly different from Durkheim's view, and you get lots of other uh, reconstructions of the origin of religion. 
we just don't know where it came from. But surely it's been there. How long it's been around is also uh, a fascinating issue, which I suppose the significance of burial sites is it tells you, well, they must have been, they've had notions about the afterlife. Uh, I'm not sure that that's the only reason why we would bury, but... I agree. I don't think it is the only reason. And someone like Bob, who, uh, who we, we agree on most things, but in this one, on Neanderthal, we're a little, little askew yeah. here. Um, uh, I don't think Bob believes that Neanderthals buried their dead, in other words. Um, no, I do. Do you? I, oh, I accept okay. these are burials, and I think it's very interesting because it means that Neanderthals, as well as our own direct ancestors, both uh, saw something particularly significant about death, which distinguishes, uh, distinguishes us from great apes. Mm -hmm. uh, death had a particular significance for Neanderthals, just like it did with us. Uh, and if religion is connected to that, then it suggests that Neanderthals had developed religion too. And I don't know, I mean, the definition of religion it could be varied and, and, and quite different. Um, the first direct evidence we might have of, quote, religion is in what we call the Upper Paleolithic period in France, uh, where we have on uh, cave walls uh, in southern France. These are the caves of Lascaux. Now, even earlier now, yeah. at Chauvet and at uh, mm -hmm. um, uh, one other one, I forget right there. How many years ago would that be? At least 3035, yeah. where we have evidence that doesn't mean it's religion, but we have the painting of animals, sure. etc., in dark corners of places, and the sculpture of females in who look very fecund, in other mm -hmm. words, who look pregnant, so there might be some idea of fertility. And that's only after we're definitely modern Homo sapiens sapiens, and after 40,000 years ago. Um, a quick pause for the usual reasons, and then back to the phones and to the email. There are now some lines available. If you want to join us, move quickly. 591-7200, the number. And for email, extension 720 at tribune.com. We return directly after this. A quick reintroduction of our guests, and we'll go directly back to the phones. Those guests are James Phillips, professor of anthropology at the University of Illinois, Chicago, curator there of the Near Eastern, or rather curator at the Field Museum of the Near Eastern and North African Anthropology Collections. Robert Martin is vice president for academic affairs at the Field Museum, where he is also curator in biological anthropology, and he is as well a member of the Committee on Evolutionary Biology at the University of Chicago. Our general topic tonight, as you might have gathered, even if you, even if you tuned in late, is the evolution of the human species, the evolution uh, biologically, but also culturally. 591-7200 is our number, and you are the next caller. Good evening. Good, good evening. Good, good evening, gentlemen. Um, when I consider the biological evolution of human beings, I think of recombinant DNA research in microbiology, the genetic modification of fruits and vegetables, the mapping of the human genome, uh, these very recent developments in, in science, and I have to consider the possibility that human beings might be on the threshold of directing their own biological evolution. Could one or both of the guests please make a comment on that possibility? Surely. Uh, the, the first thing is to make a distinction between genetic modification of the individual for some treatment of a genetic uh, deficiency, for example, and genetic modification of the germline of the cells that produce the eggs and the sperm. Uh, 
that in principle is forbidden and so nobody should be trying that because once you uh, modify the germline then it will be carried forward from generation to generation. The trouble is the way people are it's quite possible that this will be tried and uh, it's very difficult to prevent it. It shouldn't happen but it might. Uh, as long as we just treat individuals and change their genes but don't affect their, their offspring then uh, this shouldn't be a, a major problem. Uh, I'm personally uh, very, very uh, skeptical about these developments. People use the term genetic engineering. I call it genetic meddling because in engineering implies you have a plan of the machine that you're modifying, and we don't. Uh, we have the sequence of the human genome, but we have no real idea how it works as a functioning whole. Uh, the, uh, most of the human genome is what we call junk DNA, uh, but uh, of unknown function in many cases. Uh, we have a long way to go before we understand how the human genome works. And for me, to meddle around with that, and particularly if it's going to be transmitted from generation to generation, mm -hmm. is totally irresponsible. We thank you, sir, and um, I'm quite interested in your response to that question. It's rather, um, it, it has a strong force of, uh, of concern behind it. Absolutely, yes. I, I'm also worried about uh, crops because uh, there is a big danger that things can be transmitted from crop to crop. We've seen some evidence of this. And the problem is that uh, reasonable countries are controlling this quite tightly, but other countries have no control. So regardless oh. of what we might do in the United States or in Europe, in other areas of the world, uh, crops are going to be released and not under controlled conditions. And there's much concern in Europe, I know, but... Uh the, the import of GE foods from this country. Well, that's right. I mean, some of this is the Frankenstein effect. People are worried about uh, manipulating things. I, people shouldn't go overboard about this. We've been modifying uh, plants and animals for, for generations by domestication. Mm -hmm. uh, it's slightly different if you actually intervene in the genome and put things in that were never there before. And we need to be careful about that. Uh, I just think that we should have all of the controls and be very, very careful. And, and we need to monitor very closely what's happening. And there is a serious danger of something happening that uh, we uh, release and then we can no longer control. You just think of uh, biological uh, interventions we've made, every single one of them has gone wrong when we've introduced organisms to control uh, biological populations. Uh, you know, you might have a, a, a snail that is uh, causing a problem and you introduce a parasitic snail on that and then you, it has uh, side effects that you didn't expect. Every time we've introduced biological controls, they've had uh, unexpected side effects. It's going to be exactly the same with, with this. We need to be very, very careful. Does what you've just been saying have any bearing at all on the um, what is now a very conflicted uh, uh, area of scientific work, indeed surrounded by restrictions in law and by policy confusions, namely stem cell, stem cell research? research. It's a, a stem cell research is, is there for therapeutic reasons. This is a, an entirely different field. The, the reason people are... Uh, concerned about that is because of concern about uh, how you define when life starts mm -hmm. in, in human development. And so it's really a different uh, ethical and moral issue about uh, to what extent we should be 
doing that kind of thing. And the, it's shades of grey because if we actually started breeding embryos in order to produce uh, uh, stem cells, uh, that would be very questionable. But if we make use of stem cells that would be available anyway, I don't see a problem with that. So, uh, But again, it has to be very carefully controlled. We need ethical commissions that look at this mm -hmm. and, and say at what point uh, we, we're going beyond the pale. And well, it's interesting, pardon me, it's interesting recently, of course, since the U.S. government today has restricted the uh, stem cell research, et cetera, since the death of President Reagan and uh, uh, the idea that his wife, uh, Nancy uh, Reagan, and her family are very interested in stem cell research, specifically because it might have an effect eventually on Alzheimer's, which yeah. is what uh, uh, President Reagan had. I mean, times, are cha times may change, uh, but our government has a system of checks and balances, and at the moment, uh, we're not allowed to do the research that uh, many scientists believe that we should controlled research, as uh, Bob has suggested. We're hoping to do a program again fairly soon with an old friend, Leon Kass, of the University of Chicago, who is now and has for the last two years been the chairman of the president's appointed commission on bioethics, mm -hmm. which is seized of that very problem. Mm -hmm. uh, we go back to the phones, 591-7200. You are on the air. Good evening. Hello, Melvin Guest. Yes, sir. Um, the question I have is regarding nanotechnology. I've seen some Discovery Channel type pieces about tiny little motors that are just a few molecules across and um, computer chips that are made entirely of organic matter, although they're a little slower than the silicon ones. They do exist, which raises the question that maybe mankind won't create an evolutionary chain that will be passed along genetically, but it'll be passed along in a manipulative way according to the sort of legend of the cyborg of uh, science fiction lore. Yes, there are many who built good science fiction stories out of that, and a few have even uh, written serious treatises in which they suggest that the next step in human evolution won't be with uh, through protoplasmic change, but through, uh, uh, through will be a silicon evolution, so to speak. Well, the scary part is, is the technology is coming, and, and just like with your um, your grains that are genetically altered, it's sort of like a mountain, but once the mountain's there, somebody will climb it. That's human nature, I guess, for good or bad. Yeah, I, I think uh, what you're saying is correct, but I think if there is some kind of replication that's possible, for example, if we were to build nano devices with DNA built into them, so that they could actually evolve in a biological sense, or if there were some silicon products, uh, uh, products that had similar properties to DNA and could replicate themselves, then that could get out of hand. As long as these nano devices are purely mechanical and have to be replaced, uh, I don't see a major problem. But uh, once they become self-replicating, that could be very dangerous. Uh, it didn't stop the. Uh the Borg uh, from the recent <laughs> the Star Trek uh, mm -hmm. theory. Mm -hmm. I mean, they just when the when the children were born, they just implanted the nanotechnology. It was just the, what they did. That's true. How's that working out? The Borg. The yeah. Borg are right now in major trouble. Uh, we have to look at Enterprise for next year. So. <laughs> uh -huh. We thank you, sir. Yes. Uh, glad to have heard from you. And we pause for our last round of commercials. Uh, some room available on the board for additional telephone calls. Five nine one seven two double zero for anything you'd like to ask or for that matter explain to us about the nature of human 
uh, about the evolutionary path that led to Homo sapiens sapiens, and about the cultural evolution, which has brought us to this present high point, or is it, of human civilization. We return directly to Robert Martin and James Phillips after this, and directly back to the phones for your calls to James Phillips of the Department of Anthropology at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and Robert Martin, Vice President for Academic Affairs and a distinguished uh, biological scientist at, or biological anthropologist, one might say, at the Field Museum. 591-7200. You are on the air. Good evening. Good evening. Yes, sir. Uh, yes. Um, I wanted your panelists to, do, to comment on the role of sexual selection in the evolution of our species. Um, I've heard evolutionary psychologists claim that um, sexual selection, choice on the part of uh, females, is what has driven our brains to become bigger and bigger and more complex and uh, sort of driven us into the cultural realm. How would how would sexual selection have an influence upon the brain? Right. Uh, the term uh, was actually introduced by Charles Darwin, I think, the idea mm -hmm. that uh, rather than the environment selecting, it could be that uh, what the, the preferences of one sex, say the females, could exert an evolutionary effect on the other sex, the male. Mm -hmm. And uh, the caller is, is talking about a, an idea that... Uh, the increase in brain size uh, could have been favored by women favoring intelligent men, but uh, that doesn't explain why women's brains got bigger. And uh, I find a lot of these so-called uh, explanations really off the wall, to be quite honest. I mean, uh, it's very difficult to test them. And they take a well-established idea like sexual selection, where we have very good examples. The peacock, for example, if you look at the peacock's magnificent tail, um, work, research has been done to show that it really is female preference that drives signals like that. That that idea is then lifted and applied to human beings with virtually no control over the idea. A lot of the people who do that sort of thing are call themselves evolutionary psychologists, as you know. Or sociobiologists. Yes. Yeah. And if you think about it from, from a cultural point of view, which is re what we're really talking about, we're dealing with exchange of mates, that is. Um, hunters and gatherers tend to be what we call exogamous, that is, each band um, uh, doesn't marry with or mate within that band, but exchanges their genes with another band. Mm -hmm. uh, and generally speaking, throughout all of, the, uh, all of uh, prehistory, women are a commodity. They're not making the choices amongst hunters and gatherers, generally speaking. They may subliminally be making some of the choices, but in effect, they are economic commodities, and they're exchanged between groups for a variety of economic reasons. One, of course, is bearing children. The other is collecting uh, or hunting, whatever the case may be, providing a service to the community by bringing in food. And women tend to be women the gatherer, it's, uh, they're generally called, I think that's a misnomer, women the hunter and gatherer would be a better way of phrasing it, are able to bring in a lot more, uh, much of the basic food source that hunters and gatherers ate, which is not meat, you must know. I mean, mostly the primary biomass that is plants. I hope that the members of now, if listening to you, understand that you're simply doing this descriptively rather than reflecting your own sense of the way life ought to be organized. It is definitely descriptively <laughs> and certainly is not the way <laughs> I would envision life today, no. But female liberation, so to speak, women's liberation, mm -hmm. is then a very recent product of cultural change. 
Yeah, I, I think we have to distinguish here between uh, biological fact or, or biological ideas of how things happened and, and biological determinism. I mean, the idea that because something may have a biological basis that it has to be that way. Uh, we should reject. And Jim is right. I mean, in the past, it's quite possible that that's the way things operated. But to uh, to say that because they operated that way, that's the way things should be, that's where the problem arises, and that's why we needed the feminist movement to stop that kind of thing. To decommodify women. Yes, indeed. Exactly. Uh, 591-7200 is where you reach us. You have done so. Good evening. You're on the air. Good evening, Mel. Yes, sir. I'm wondering whether your guests feel that God is a necessary part of evolution. Could evolution, in other words, have happened without God? Um, obviously, you think it could not have, am I right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, explain your own thought just a bit before we ask our guests to react. It um, doesn't seem possible that the changes that result in a different species uh, evolving from an earlier one are possible uh, without divine intervention because so many things have to happen and work correctly that it just doesn't seem you can get uh, a bat to evolve from a mouse. This is, in fact, uh, the argument by design, is it not? Right. I, I, one thing I would say is that uh, I don't see any necessary conflict between religious belief and believing in evolutionary theory. There are lots of people who accept both. One is a matter of belief and the other is a matter of, of testable scientific fact. Uh, as I explained earlier, uh, evolution by natural selection isn't some kind of theory. It, it has to happen, and, it, and so change over time in a lineage happens. Uh, the question about uh, developing new species is an important one because uh, it probably takes uh, a long period of time and we're talking about millions of years and one of the problems everybody has is, is thinking in terms of such long periods of time. And uh, I personally believe that you can get new species by uh, selection of existing material. So to answer your first question, I don't think uh, I, I don't have to invoke God to explain how evolution occurs, but I would say, on the other hand, I cannot rule out the uh, existence of God on the basis of evolutionary theory. All I can say is that I have a perfectly good explanation for how things could evolve physically. Uh, but the other thing that should be mentioned is that there, there are really uh, three different aspects to evolution. One is how does life emerge? And that's a major problem. Uh, once life exists, then natural evolution by natural selection to me is inevitable. But then we have this question of how new species form. And because it takes such a long period of time, you don't observe it. I, I'm never going to be around long enough to see anything developing into a new species that takes a if long time. If I may give a quick example of what I mean, uh, the evolution of a lung, for example, it would seem to me that unless a lung works perfectly, or at least well enough, to allow whoever possesses it to breathe, it's useless and therefore will disappear in that organism that possesses it. Uh, so you have to go from something that doesn't really exist at all to something that works well enough uh, to breathe in an enormously complex organism. 
uh, in one generation. I just don't see how that's possible. But lungs have an enormously long history. I mean, they, they go back uh, at least 300 million years, uh, vertebrate lungs. And uh, we have all the intermediate stages represented among living organisms of how you can develop a lung from a, an organ in a fish. And uh, I didn't see any problem with that. The, uh, the intermediates exist, so I can imagine organs uh, changing slowly over time. Uh, the problem is, if you get, take an, a complex organ like an eye, is imagining all of the intermediate stages, and they would all have to be functional. They would have to serve a function. But mm -hmm. even the evolution of the eye, in my view, has been well explained. Richard Dawkins has particularly focused on the eye uh, as, and how it would have evolved as his answer to the argument by design. Absolutely. Or yeah. the argument from design. Yeah. Our thanks to the caller. And here's an interesting email, which in a sense uh, pursues the same question, but in different terms. Um, this discussion, says the listener, fills me with true awe. Please ask Mr. Martin and Mr. Phillips if either believes in a first cause or in any kind of divine fiat sustaining the awesome process of evolution, or fashioning the uniquely human species. Now, there are those evolutionists who argue, yes, God may have, in fact, the Pope is one, who argue uh, the process is as Darwin uh, outlined it, more or less. Natural selection does occur, but all of this is guided by a divine ordinance which got it going in the first place. It's a question that's unanswerable, in my opinion. And and frankly, um, I'm looking at, I look at, the data that I that I excavate, and I look at the information that's brought to me by uh, scientists in the biological, anatomical, mm -hmm. or whatever uh, DNA realm, a genetic realm through time, and then I apply the material that I recover in relationship to it, and look at that in terms of evolution. Is there a prime cause? I don't know the answer. The final thing I would say is that one of the most striking, convincing things for me is that people reconstructed uh, what they thought the tree of life was using anatomical structures. And then when we started to study DNA and looked at the sequences, the way in which those sequences change exactly matches the tree that we produced on grounds of anatomy. I think that's one of the most stunning confirmations that we were right. And to answer the question, I would say that divine intervention is not necessary. It may have happened, but I can imagine evolution occurring without divine intervention. We're almost out of time, and I should have asked you sooner, and I do uh, put it to you now, uh, Robert. What's going on at the Field Museum that bears upon the matters we've been discussing tonight? Well, uh, we have just closed our Life Over Time exhibit to uh, rework it, and so it will reopen in 2006, and, and it's being uh, completely renovated from top to bottom to show the evolutionary process from the very beginning. And it's going to take a much more ecological approach, for example, at the plants and the animals and, and the movement of the continents will all be viewed together the process of extinction. And I'm particularly happy that the final part, evolution of humans, will be uh, much better done than was possible in the past. So uh, I'm looking forward to the reopening of life over time in 2006. It's going to be a major development for us. What about the, re the research program as such? The research program, every, practically everybody at the Field Museum is working on the evolutionary paradigm in one way or another. We have uh, an, uh, botany, 
uh, geology and zoology, uh, all essentially biologists working, uh, and all of them work from the evolutionary framework. Anthropology works from a cultural framework, but it links up very closely, as you've seen tonight, with Jim and I interacting. And um, Jim, what's your current research undertaking? My You've only got half a minute. Okay, up I've uh, been working in the West Bank, actually, on one of the earliest uh, sites which may produce a Neanderthal uh, skeletal uh -huh. remains, uh, although I can no longer work there. Uh, and so I've shifted to Kenya and uh, working with one of our colleagues at the museum, and I will be working with the Oriental Institute in Turkey uh, beginning in August on a, the city of Antioch, the tell of the city of Antioch. Hmm. So it isn't just uh, paleoanthropology, it's also cultural anthropology and archaeology. It is archaeology. Yeah. Paleoanthropology is archaeology and biology. To be yeah. sure. Yeah. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. Robert Martin of the Field Museum, where he is Vice President for Academic Affairs and Curator in Biological Anthropology, and James Phillips of the University of Illinois, Chicago, where he is Professor of Anthropology.